Hi there, welcome to Somewhat Overfitting, the podcast about data science and digital transformation. My name is Jonas and every other week I'm interviewing people in the field of data science on how they are using data in their day-to-day -day business life. Guest in this episode is Matt Hilburn, Vice President of Research and Marketing at the Economic Development Corporation of Utah. Matt did a bachelor's in economics and business and a master's degree in econometrics. Matt and I talked about what the EDC Utah does and his job there. We also discussed where marketing research fits into the data science field and how it differs from market research. We then talked about how the EDC Utah uses surveys, focus groups, and one-on-one -on -one interviews for their research. At the end, Matt described what in his analytical toolbox is and gave some tips for students and companies on how to start out with data science. So let's get started. Matt, thanks so much for joining. Thanks you, for having me, Jonas. You are Vice President of Research and Marketing at the Economic Development Corporation of Utah. Could you tell us a little bit about your background first? Yeah, great question. So I, as the Vice President of Research and uh, Marketing at EDC Utah, we strive to provide data to companies that want to move to Utah. And it's a really cool job. It's one of those jobs, you know, you don't really grow up thinking to yourself, I want to do economic development. It's, uh, but it's something that I kind of fell into because of my background. I went to the University of Utah. I received an undergraduate degree in economics, a mm -hmm. minor in business, and pursued a master's degree in econometrics, which for those who don't know is basically just an applied statistics degree. It's, right. it's applying statistics to different business or economics principles. I've worked primarily in marketing research at a couple of different marketing research firms where we try to help customers and clients with product development and client satisfaction. And then uh, got recruited to EDC Utah, the Economic Development Corporation of Utah, where we help bring businesses to Utah. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about us is when we bring a business to Utah, they don't bring people with them. Uh, you know, if, for example, we brought Goldman Sachs here. So when Goldman Sachs moved here years and years ago, um, they, they put their feet down here in Utah and then they hire amongst Utahns. And so our goal is to bring those businesses here to provide jobs for recent graduates and for experienced professionals so that we can continue to see great job growth here in the state. What is your job right now as the as the vice president of marketing and research? Yeah, uh, you know, my job right now, I know it sounds like I cover two departments. I cover three. One is research, one is marketing, and one is community strategy. So my job as the vice president of research and marketing is the high level explanation is to promote the state of Utah as a mm -hmm. really great place for businesses, which it actually is. You know, it's easy to sell a product that you're already good at. Utah is actually a very good place for business. Mm -hmm. uh, we've cost, we've got great labor, it's all there. So my job is to help promote the state of Utah to people outside of the state through using marketing and through using uh, really excellent data to prove why we're great at that. So uh, we do that through the marketing team that are really excellent marketers. And then the research team provides all of the data for that. And we're generally sharing the message of here's what kind of labor we have. Here mm -hmm. is what our real estate uh, rent uh, lease rates uh, look like. Here are the different industries we have in the state of Utah. And then we target different industries. But then the community strategy department that I manage as well, that consists of two individuals who work with Utah businesses mm -hmm. to help uh, Utah businesses grow and expand as well. So we haven't forgotten about 
those really excellent companies we have here in the state already that are looking to grow and looking to hire more people. So that team is dedicated towards helping them. Great. And the, the data you are collecting, is that mainly used for, um, for advertising the state or is that also the data that is then used and provided to the companies that they can use the data to know how to grow here? Yeah, it's both. We use, uh, we use most of our primary data, the data where we go out and we collect perceptions or uh, feedback. Most of that data is used to inform our marketing efforts. You really don't want, you know, marketing can really be a black hole of money. Uh, you know, if you want to do an advertising campaign, it can get really expensive. So you want to know that the marketing that you're putting out is founded in data that you can feel really confident that the messages you're sharing are effective and that the audience you're targeting are the correct audiences. So uh, most, so we collect, we do marketing research to collect primary data to inform those, those marketing efforts, but we collect a lot of secondary research mm -hmm. from places like the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the U.S. Census Bureau and other public sources. And we use that data primarily for responding to the actual business requests. So let's say you're a business in California, you're interested in moving to Utah and you contact us. Most of the data we would provide them would be showing them that secondary publicly available data, helping them understand uh, why Utah is a great place. Now yeah. you might ask if it's publicly available, why do they need us? Uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, if you're not a professional researcher, a lot of these data sources are kind of hard to navigate. Yeah. If you've been to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they have a, a wealth of information and it can be quite hard to find, you know, if you wanted to just know how much money does the average software developer make in Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah. Be quite difficult to find that on the website so we specialize in knowing how to access that data yeah and before we jump a little bit deeper into what data you are using could you try to put the term marketing research in the field of data science absolutely data science and marketing research are related in many ways Data science is probably a little bit more of a hardcore, uh, you know, a lot more numbers based, whereas marketing research blends a little bit of the creativity that comes through marketing. So no marketing effort, no marketing research effort should be employed without the use of great data and great analytics. Yeah. And that's where data science comes into play. If you want to, if you want to run a campaign where you're trying to determine A/B testing, which which landing page on your website resonates more, which product is uh, is resonating more? It, product optimization studies measure. Think about your iPhone. How do they determine how large the screen should be versus mm -hmm. how long the battery lasts? They could make the battery last much longer than they currently do, but it would cost more money. And so you've got to balance all those different features. Well, data science answers those questions. It allows us to assign probabilities to different features of a product that we can then add up to identify the perfect mix and combination of features to create the iPhone that sits in our pocket today that uh, you know Apple has figured out that that perfect combination is what's going to result in the most revenue and the most sales from customers. And that's where data science really plays a heavy role. Marketing is not very useful without the background of data. 
my creativity or my personal preferences uh, would lead that effort without data. But I really want to know more about what my customer thinks than my own personal preferences. Right. So how, how then does marketing research differ from, from classical market research? You know, they're often used synonymously. So are some there are some differences depending on who you're talking to where market research can tend to be more on the macro level economics type mm -hmm. of research where you're understanding um, basic consumer behavior and uh, you know CPI the, the cost of goods and you're understanding pricing differences between different markets mm -hmm. uh, Salt Lake City is a much cheaper market than San, San Francisco and oh, so by far. <laughs> <laughs> so market research identifies a lot of those differences, whereas yeah. market research tends to be research that is much more focused on customers and understanding the particular customer of a particular company. How do we get that person to buy more money, to be more loyal, to like the product more and engage with our brand more? So you said you use on the one side like data that is public publicly available do you also do some research as well by yourself we do yeah and i think it's something that not a lot of companies are focusing enough on we hear a lot about people people say a lot about how you know they want to hire data scientists and they want to do great marketing research they want to be data driven but a lot of companies struggle to know exactly how to do that and i think that's mm -hmm. why it's so important that particularly for students who are going through school right now Ironically, a lot of time those students can get into the job market and do a little bit of the teaching, you know, to their to their bosses in a way, depending on where you go to work, because um, because the, the, those efforts are not often employed as well as they could at other companies. So we do uh, we we write surveys and send surveys. We have two main groups of or of of two main targets. One mm -hmm. would be executives of companies. If a company wants to move to Utah, the executive makes that decision. Well, you can imagine that's kind of hard to target. Um, you know, if we wanted to, uh, you know, do a marketing campaign, that'd be very expensive because most companies aren't actually interested in moving their business. But how do you find those ones who are? Well, we found that the most effective way of reaching them is to work with real estate organizations. And there are individuals called site selector consultants or location advisors. And when a company wants to move, they tend to go to a site selector and say, hey, we're thinking of moving. Will you help us move? So if that site selector is really familiar with Utah or other states, then they can do a really good job directing that client. So we've discovered that the site selectors are actually the best people for us to market to help them right. know Utah because then they can share the Utah story. So we send surveys to site selectors and ask them, what are your perceptions of Utah? How much do you know about Utah? And then we analyze that data. We do regression analysis, logistic regression and linear yeah. and ANOVAs and all that good stuff to identify what are the things about Utah that most increase the likelihood that a site selector would recommend Utah as a, as a place to do business to one of their clients. And then those are the areas that we start marketing to site selectors. And we find gaps where maybe, maybe a site selector on average says that Utah does not have a good pro-business environment. Mm -hmm. Well, we do. And so that would be an area where we would learn of a gap and say, okay, great. Now we know 
for the next 12 months, let's focus all of our site selector marketing materials on the fact that Utah is a great pro-business environment and let's show data to prove why. So that's the type of data collection that has really improved the perception of site selectors in their feelings towards Utah. We do that same study over multiple years Hmm. and perception of site selectors over time has continued to increase as we've made it. And the the survey that you sent out, would that be, for example, a question like, what is your perception of the pro-business environment in Utah? And then it would be one equals good and five equals bad. Or how are you quantifying that in a, in a survey? Yeah, we have some questions like that where we'll mm-hmm. be very direct and we'll just say, what, yeah, what is your, what is your opinion of Utah's pro-business environment on a scale of one to five, one being excellent and sometimes you know if you really get tricky with it uh you start realizing that you can you can find what's called a latent variable which is a variable that's kind of hard to measure uh uh, by combining other variables so in other words if i want to measure how a site selector feels about utah's pro-business environment i might say something like how do you feel about our lease rates are our lease rates a good deal how do you feel about utah's regu business regulations How do you feel about Utah's business taxes? And then on the back end, as we're using data science to analyze that data, we can sort of create some indices and some composites to combine some of those factors together to create an overall score where we can say, hey, okay, we've combined all these business factors and you know maybe they're low in one area and high in another area. And we've clustered some of those variables and we're calling that cluster of variables pro-business environment or perception towards pro-business environment. And there are some cool techniques you can use, um, a PCA, principal component Mm -hmm. analysis or factor analysis Mm -hmm. is a great approach to take multiple variables and try to find an underlying theme. And so sometimes we use things like that as well. But the key to good survey writing is making sure that you don't have a lot of open-ended questions. Mm ask, well, I, I don't really know how to write a question that just lists options. That's where your your pre-research comes in and doing exploratory analysis. And, and you call up a site selector and you say, hey, when you're thinking of moving a, a company to a new location, what kinds of things are you thinking about? And they'll say, oh, well, we're, we're thinking about you know, lease rates and we're thinking about, um, you know, universities and that kind of stuff. So now you're starting to get your information so that when you build your quantitative survey, you can actually have drop downs where you can say, please rate real estate uh, rates and universities. And, and that way you're taking a lot of the work away from the general population you send the survey to. And do you also use comparison, for example, to another state when you say rate the universities, would you be like rate the universities in Utah or rate the perception of the quality of the graduates or the universities in Utah compared to California, Nevada, or whatever state that would be? Sometimes it gets really tricky. In fact, we really wanted to look at a particular measure. And what we realized was when you ask someone, how do you feel this uh, compares to other states, uh, you know, comparing asking someone to rate uh, real estate lease rates against 50 states obviously becomes really tricky. So like you said, then, then you start to realize, okay, well, could we, could we just say, what are the three states that are most important? You know? So yes, then you could say, well, how does Utah compare to Texas, California, and Washington state? Three of the states that Utah competes with the most in corporate recruitment, for example. 
other alternative that we've done in the past is we've said we have a qualifier question that says, have you worked with other states on corporate recruitment? If they say yes, then we'll say, how does Utah compare to the other states? Are we better, about the same, are we worse? So uh, you can be really specific, but just making sure that you're making the survey really easy for the respondents so that they're not having to answer 50 questions. But, but also sometimes you can be a little more generic, such as just saying, well, are we better or worse than other people you've worked with? And, and I have found a lot of times in data science, you know, I'm a statistician and so I very much love, you know, the numbers and being very precise. But sometimes when it comes down to marketing, you kind of just want to know the direction, you know, are we better or are we worse? Should we have more on pro-business environment or less? And sometimes just knowing the general directionality can help us make decisions. Yeah. So the, the main source of your data would be third-party data from the Census Bureau? Your, yeah. your One source, yeah. Uh, census, um, economic impact uh, organizations, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, workforce services organizations, mm -hmm. all those, you know, the government actually collects a lot of data mm -hmm. on, uh, on workforce and on industry. That's the primary source. It's easy to access. It's available. The problem with that type of data is it doesn't always meet your very specific objective. Mm -hmm. So if somebody asks us, how much does the average software developer in Salt Lake City make? Or how much does the average data scientist make? We can pull that data. The Bureau of Labor Statistics already has that data. Mm -hmm. If somebody asks us, you know, what, what is the general sentiment surrounding, um, I don't know, free speech, you know, mm -hmm. in Salt Lake City? Well, that data doesn't exist. And so that would be something we'd have to go out and now send out a survey and collect the data. So you always want to try to find secondary data or existing data if you can, but it doesn't tend to have, you, you, you have a harder time finding the data that meets your specific objectives when you do that. So then you have to shift to primary data and the challenge with primary data is it can be expensive. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. That's yeah. like, and primary data expensive by making your own survey or also by buying it from somebody who... Yeah, all of the above. So oh. if, if you're, you know, if you're lucky enough that you know how to write surveys... Yeah. You can save that cost, but if you need to pay someone else to write a survey, that's a that's a cost. Yeah. You then have a software program like Qualtrics or SurveyMonkey. Now, some are cheaper. You know, SurveyMonkey and SurveyGizmo don't cost quite as much. They're not as good as Qualtrics. I don't recommend using things like Google Forms or Google. Those things just have um, greater limitations, which mm -hmm. which make the response rates lower, and um, and you can get uh, false information. And then the final piece is panel data. So if you have a list of email addresses, for example, like us, we we have email addresses of about 900 site selectors. So we get mm -hmm. to send our survey directly to them. But if, on the other hand, let's say I'm doing a survey for uh, you know for um, Apple. And I'm sending out, they do their own surveys, but, but uh, let's say <laughs> for Apple and, and I'm really just trying to send it out to the general population. I just want to know what does the average person think about the iPhone? Well, to do that, you have to hire what's called a panel company. And those companies are, are companies who will go out and find responses for you. Uh, they'll get email addresses for you. They'll get phone numbers for you. And that can be very expensive. You know, you're looking at at least $5 per response And if you're doing a quantitative survey, you're going to want a couple hundred, you know, responses, depending on how yeah. large the population is, you might want thousands of responses. So if you're thinking at five to $10 per person, that gets expensive really fast. Yeah. So ideally, you'll have access to the email addresses of your customers. And that's why a lot of businesses today, they'll ask, what's your email address? What's your phone number? Sign up for our newsletter, sign up for our coupons. Yeah. 
that's really not just to send you coupons. Uh, part of it is so that they can track your spending behavior. And part of it is so that they can communicate with you in the future about uh, surveys and research needs that they have. Yeah. Do you also conduct focus groups or would that be too expensive in for the scale that you that you need? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, EDC Utah doesn't usually do focus groups. I've done, uh, I think, two focus groups is all since I've been here in the last six years mm. in Utah. Mm. My, you know, my personal opinion, you know, you've got sort of the three approaches to primary data collection. You've got survey writing, the focus groups, and you've got IDIs, in-depth interviews. I mm -hmm. find that I like I like in-depth interviews better than focus groups. There is a place for all of those. So you really just need to know what your objectives are of the study. But in-depth interviews are very broad, right? I can sit down for 45 minutes with one person and I can get a lot of information from them. A focus group is a little less broad. I've got the same 45 minutes, but now I've got eight to 12 people And you're, you're battling with people who have really strong personalities versus sort of that sheep mentality right. and yeah. you can kind of end up getting a lot of people just sort of being agreeable. Um, and then you've got the quantitative survey, which is actually not, um, not broad at all, right? You've got five to 10 minutes to get information. So very limited time, but now you can send it to a mass of people and that's where statistical inference is applicable, which is not applicable yeah. at the focus group or IDI level. So I've done focus groups. I think they're great and they're really valuable under certain circumstances, but I tend to lean more towards a one-on-one -on -one sit down with about 10 people rather than a focus group of 10 people. It takes more time. Though. Do you use that then, for example, in the beginning before you start a survey to get like the, the questions to ask? I'm so glad you asked that. The survey, you know, the research process can be a little bit different depending on your objectives, but in mm. general, it follows a very standard process, which is you know, your first step, you discover what the objectives are of your client or of yourself. What is it we're trying to accomplish? Then you do secondary exploratory research. You identify all the data that already exists on our topic. So let's say you're, let's say you're a university and you're trying to improve enrollment in the you know, school business. So mm -hmm. what I want to do is find out what other universities have already done research like this and have any of them published that. Let's find out what they learned and what they did. Then you move on to in-depth interviews. So now you're going to interview industry experts. You're going to in interview students. You're going to interview those other colleges that have already made improvements, then potentially focus groups. And it, all mm -hmm. along the way, you're educating yourself and you're learning more and more about what you need to do in order to accomplish your objective until you finally get to that online quantitative survey, which by then, hopefully you've learned enough from the previous steps that you can have a rock star online quantitative survey because at the end of the day it's pretty hard to you know uh, recommend to a university you know school of business hey you should make these five changes if all you've done is talk to 10 people from in-depth interviews and 10 people in a focus group yeah. Uh, yeah what if that wasn't representative of the larger public so then you're really relying on that online quantitative survey of hundreds of students and their feedback to be what's going to guide your recommendations. And that's why you do all that work just to make sure that your eight minute survey is perfect. And yeah. that's where you're going to make all your recommendations from. Great. And the EDC Utah does, it seems like they are doing the marketing and then kind of in quotation marks, waiting for the businesses to come to, to Utah. And then you would offer them statistics and data in some way of or the other would that be in like a report like a x amount of sites of pdf being like that's the major points or would it be 
a dashboard in some kind or is there a dashboard that you can send out whereas like that's how our stats are at the moment you you nailed the question we ask ourselves every day on what what is the best approach uh and you know so we have the majority of businesses do reach out to us directly we yeah. have a small group that goes proactively and tries to find businesses mm -hmm. to utah but to answer your question um it's generally You know, I, I know in school, we learn a lot about writing reports and that continues to be important in a lot of realms in business. And a lot of the reasons mm -hmm. I do, I write a lot of reports, but generally with a lot of business topics, it tends less to be about reports and more about, to your point, just spreadsheets. So yeah. most of the time when we're sending data to a company is about, um, you know, wages in Utah or lease rates or utility rates, normally it's in a spreadsheet. We, we pull all that data into a spreadsheet, send it off to them. And part of the reason for that is it takes more time to write up a report. And there's also, you know, when you write a report, that's usually because you're giving it to someone without the benefit of being able to present it to them. And that's yeah. what we see in PowerPoint presentations today as well, where we kind of will build this really long in-depth PowerPoint presentation, and then we'll kind of click through each slide and we'll read the yeah. slides and all that. Yeah. is a PowerPoint presentation should simply be a visual aid to your vocal presentation. So what might be a 30-page PowerPoint presentation should maybe only be five slides with five yeah. graphs, you know. So we tend to just send the data through Excel, um, sometimes through Word, and then we hop on the phone with them and we walk them through what we've sent them explain okay. to them, let them ask any questions. And sometimes sometimes they do end up being a report. For example, we we were the ones who bid on the Amazon HQ2 project. Uh, if you mm -hmm. We yeah. a 200 page proposal for that. Uh, it's very long, <laughs> took us a long time to put together. I think it was 101 pages. Um, and uh, so sometimes we do still need to write reports. Yeah. And those Excel files, would they include graphs or are they the raw data you know, or is it like, like, yeah, it's, it's both. It's, it's usually just the raw data, um, but often graphs as well. As a guy who loves data visualization, I always mm -hmm. want to use graphs as much as I can. But the interesting thing that I think we lose sometimes when we get really focused on data visualization is we forget that tables actually sometimes are the most appropriate uh, visualization. Yeah. We think of data, we think of a table as being as being what we're trying to get away from. And in general, that is true. But if you've yeah. got a really large table with a lot of data points, converting that to a graph can actually make it more difficult to comprehend. It's too, there's too much going on. So yes, we use graphs when we can, but you know, don't be afraid to use a table if you've got too much data Sometimes a table is the best way to go. What was your biggest challenge so far in your work since you graduated from, from college? You know, my greatest challenge is finding mentors. I yeah. found that, um, you know, like I mentioned previously, there really aren't a lot of, of data scientists out there. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. going through school, it kind of feels like it because we have a lot of friends who are and But, you know, the typical business doesn't have a lot of them. And when they do, you know, everybody kind of has their own specialty. And so sometimes, you know, a machine learning engineer or a, or a data scientist or a statistician. I personally consider myself a statistician. Mm -hmm. uh, I use Python in the work that I do. And, and I don't know very many people who, you know, who are experts at Python. And I don't know very many people who... You know, if I'm working on a, a linear regression and, I, you know, I come up with sort of a, a funky thing happening in my data that maybe I'd like some advice on, there's not a whole lot of people I can turn to. 
So I have a group of people who, some of my old professors and some people that I've worked with at analytics companies that I have that I can turn to, but especially earlier on in my career, you know, it's not so much of a problem anymore, but especially the first few years out of college, I just found that there weren't a lot of people I could really turn to, to kind of continue my education and help me to grow. And so I think it's important when you try it, when you find someone who kind of knows what they're talking about, you know, Hmm. try to befriend them and try to, uh, you know, see if they'll be your mentor. And uh, I find that it sometimes it's nice to just be able to pick up the phone once a year, you know, and call professors and say, Hey, I've run into this little, this funky problem. What, What advice do you have for me? So finding those people who can help you out. I think that was my biggest challenge. Yeah. And you overcome it by just like waiting till you met more and then it kind of naturally yeah. evolved into like mentorships. And it happened much more slowly than I wish it had. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> genuinely, I, I genuinely feel like I could have gotten as good as I am today faster if I had known some of those people sooner. So yeah, I would say in your college years, seek out people who are really great at what you're interested in and try to retain those relationships for a long time. Because yeah, I, I, for many years, you know, I just had maybe one or two people that I thought I could kind of rely on, but you know, it'd be better if they were at your job because then you can Mm -hmm. talk to them multiple times throughout the day and get thoughts and advice. But at some of the companies that I've worked at, I'm the only statistician or the only scientist and they're very much relying on me to be the expert, which on one end is really cool. You know, they kind of believe everything you say and you have to be careful. But, uh, but on the other hand, it can be kind of scary because you're thinking, oh, my God. In fact, you know, as a few years ago, I provided some information to a particular organization. And maybe six months later, I found out about some big changes they had made, which were pretty related to the research I had produced. And, and, I, and, uh, and I just was kind of talking to them about it. And they said, oh, yeah, we, we made all those changes because of what you told us in your research. And I just thought, Oh my God. Hey, well, <laughs> wow. I'm glad I did a good job and I kind of want to go back and look it over and make sure I didn't get anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. And uh, luckily it was the right move, but you know, there is a lot of responsibility in telling somebody. And I think that's another thing. We throw around data a lot these days, right? And we all yeah. have an opinion. When you're starting to recommend to people what they should do, you better be sure that the data you're using is accurate. You better yeah. cleaned it correctly, that you analyzed it correctly, and that you're interpreting it correctly because they will make a million dollar decision based off of what you said. So, uh, so being able to have some people you can turn to to help you in those cases um, is really important. So I did it sort of slowly. I I started looking for people mm-hmm. who were who were experts in the field. And kind of had to be a little bit more proactive about it. So yeah, find them, you know, go to conferences, uh, seek them out while you're still in school. And then when you get into industry, get to know other companies that do things that you love mm-hmm. and try to reach out to them on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, attend uh, professional development opportunities on the topics. You know, Sawtooth is a great example. Sawtooth does, has a has a data science platform that does conjoint studies. Go to the Sawtooth conference. You'll meet a whole bunch of data geeks there. And hmm. Stay in touch with them. Um, try and create a little bit of a community. And then you mentioned that you use Python. Could you describe what is in your toolkit right now? What you use on a day-to-day basis, and also maybe where you store the data that you are collecting? Yeah. You know, I've used a lot of different programs over time. I started with programs like R and SAS, really liked them. Um, I used SPSS, kind of evolved into using Stata, 
uh, I know a lot of data scientists kind of stick to Python, but I use a lot of the other statistical software mm-hmm. as well. And then I learned about, well, I actually learned about a program called Statistica really early on in my career that I loved. And I kind of got back into it in later years. Um, and then I learned Python um, not too long ago, uh, as well as it has gained popularity in the last few years, um, even though it's been around for quite a while. And so within Python, I, I, I do feel like Python is the best for me. And mm-hmm. it's important. There's a lot of there's a lot of debate. What's the best program? And it really just depends on, I think, preferences almost more than anything. All the programs can do a great job. So it really has more to do with your expertise with that particular program mm-hmm. and what you want to do with it. So I would say before anything else, become an expert at a software program. That would be another challenge that I that I would cite is yeah. a lot of programs. Well, I didn't know any of them expertly. Yeah. You need to just pick one. Just choose one early on in your career. And just pick one and become an expert at it. Once you're an expert at one, you can then learn another one pretty easily later on. But you just got to pick one, commit to it and get really good mm. at it. And right now, Python is the one that most employers are hiring for. So I would encourage Python, if anything, for that reason. Mm. So I do love Python. I think it's great. I use, you know, I use a lot of the libraries in it. Um, uh, some of the cool ones that I really like because I'm a big data visualization, there's a package in Python called Seaborn, uh, mm-hmm. Plotly, which are some really great visualization uh, tools. I think a lot of times in data science, we get really excited about just going straight to a logistic regression or, or something like that. The reality is, you know, if you'll really put your fingers in the data, it's quite fun, you know, doing yeah. simple things too. Uh, you know, building graphs and looking at the data and understanding the data and building histograms for your continuous data and your bar charts for your categorical data and and even simple things like cross tabs and t tests and ANOVAs those can be really important. You know, if if I have a business objective, one of the things at EDC Utah. We have public sector members and private sector members. We wanted to know how those two groups differ. Well, that's hmm. a test, right? We just wanted to know how how does, uh, we'll just say average satisfaction. How does average satisfaction differ between public sector and private sector? Well, that's a t-test. That's not a logistic regression. And so we're, we're limiting ourselves if we want to just jump to just that advanced stuff. We, we should know the whole toolbox. Hmm. Well, I use all those different analytical tools regularly. And then you've got logistic regression, cluster analysis, uh, you know, fact pronounced PCA, things like that. Um, but I, I feel like you'll be much more successful if you become comfortable with all the different statistical processes and machine learning processes, if you become comfortable with all the different packages in Python, whether you're using, you know, despite whatever interface you're using, whether you're using Spider or Jupyter or whatever it may be, PyCharm, um, take advantage of all the packages, the, you know, the basics of Pandas and Matplotlib and all of them. Mm. And also play around with Seaborn and Plotly and, Cufflinks and some of those that can do a little bit more advanced stuff on the visualizations, but don't limit yourself by just doing what you think is the cool stuff. Even the simple stuff can be really powerful. Yeah, great. That, that's that's good to know. It's interesting to know to go also into like the tools of like the statistical tools, so not only always the software tools. It's like oh, I use Python and I don't know Power BI or something. Yeah, exactly. well, you bring up yeah, a good point with uh, Power BI and Tableau are really great tools for visualizing a lot of that data is well. mm. want to build a good dashboard, which we don't do a whole lot. Um, but I think dashboards are going to become more and more popular over time. They're so simple. They're so easy to use. Yeah. They're so easy to interpret. And because companies are coming data, becoming more and more data driven, but yet you don't have a full staff of data scientists 
the dashboards are easy for the typical person to understand. So I think those are becoming more and more popular. Yeah. And how do you store the data from, for example, from your surveys? Would it be in a CSV file on a, on a normal server or do you put that in a database? We really do just use CSV files. Yeah. Databases become important when you've got lots and lots of data. You really need to have a good database and you need to learn SQL and, and do a great job with that. The primary research that we do tends to be, well, I should say this first, the secondary research we do, data collection, is quite limited. You know, it's quite specific. Those are all mm -hmm. files that, you know, we, we let those stay on the, on the government's uh, servers and we just pull what we need to. As far as yeah. primary data, you know, when we do a survey of site selectors of, say, eight or 900 site selectors, we get two or 300 responses. I just leave those in a CSV and obviously I upload it to Python and analyze it in Python. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think that's another route where Excel is extremely powerful and databases have their place. If you're doing big data, you need a database. Mm. Don't get me wrong. You know, if you're Apple or if you're doing, you know, some of these really big, you need a database. But I think in some ways, Excel almost gets criticized as being a little old school. Um, but the truth is, Excel is extremely uh, malleable and it's very easy to play with the data. And, you know, in, in software development, you sort of... You almost never even look at the data, you know, hmm. you, you, it's existing in the background, but you're, you're, you're typing code and you're doing things, never even looking at it. It's probably more of a personal preference where I want to physically see it and, you know, <laughs> I want to feel it and I want to look at it. And I feel like that approach for me has made me better when I'm standing in front of an executive who's going to grill me about, you know, why I'm saying what I'm saying. And did you do this? Right. <laughs> I feel like it's aided me to be able to say that I know that data so well. Yeah. So I, I prefer to just leave it in CSV, but if you're going to have more than a couple thousand rows, you definitely would need to throw that into a database. All right. Thank you so much for all the insight. That was really interesting. Do you have anything you would like to, to add at the end that we might not have covered that you would like to talk about? You know, I would just say marketing research and data science is obviously a very fast growing field. Um, there's, there's still a lot of adoption that industries need to do. I think it's mm -hmm. more, I think it's a faster growing field amongst students than employers right now. Employers mm -hmm. want to get on board and they want to be data driven, but I think students g actually get it better than employers do. And uh, I hope that catches up soon. Um, so it's a challenge in the industry to help businesses understand the value of research, the value of data in their minds. They, they, they kind of think they get it. But when it comes to their checkbooks, you know, sometimes they have a hard time investing in it. Right. You invest a lot of money in your marketing, right? All companies mm -hmm. put a lot of money into marketing. You put money where your priority is. But there's not as many companies that have quite realized that they need to throw a lot of money at their data infrastructure and their data uh, architecture and their data processes. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of businesses that are still trying to catch up with that. So I think that's why the next generation of data scientists and data analysts can help with that as they get into the field, help convince businesses of the importance of it. Would you have a tip for a company that is wanting to get more data driven and looking for people, uh, but might be like, oh, yeah, we need someone who is a little, little bit more experienced, but then has the issue that there might not be enough that have that experience, but more students like me, for example, who don't have a lot of experience. I was like looking into jobs and they always want like two years experience, three years experience. And when you say that there is not a lot of people available right now who have that experience, but mainly students, which 
don't have that experience, but the experience is important to some extent, right? Like yeah. when you come right out of school and I'm supposed to help building up a, a, a data department. Do you have any tips for a company that might only, only in quotation marks have access to students right out of school, how to deal with that situation? Then? Yeah, great question. So my first tip, you know, I've, I'm a vice president, so I've, you know, I make a lot of budget dis, uh, decisions. My current budget is about $600,000. I know what it means, my personal budget, not the company budget, my, my departmental budget. So I know what it means to have to compromise one thing you need for another thing. You know, I totally get the competing priorities. So my first advice to a business is data is so much more important than you are giving it credit for. You have to spend more on it. You just have to. You are not going to be able to compete with your competitors. You're not going to be able to make the best decisions possible. Your gut is actually not good enough. You definitely need to start making that investment. So the next fiscal year, when you're sitting down for your budget discussions, just start allocating a little bit of, create a new line item for data analysis and for research, put some money into it, make that a priority. Second thing is, if all you can afford right now is you're working with students and working with, uh, you know, if that's all you can afford, um, I find that most of the universities around here have really great programs. University of Utah is a great example. Uh, I know the capstone program for the masters of business analytics uh, degree there at the university. They've always, they're always looking for projects for their students. And that's a cool environment because what you can do is work with say three or four students who are being supervised by a professor. So you know you're going to get quality work out of it. And then as you're working with that student, allow that to almost be like an internship for that student for your company, and then hire that student. So now you've worked with them, you know you know that they've done well. Of course, they're not a 20-year veteran in data analytics, but you, you know what they're capable of. And so now you, you, you've got someone that you can at least rely on for some important pieces. And then go find a consultant. You know, there's, there's a couple of research companies around here in Salt Lake City. Find a consultant who can come in and sit down with that student and advise them on different pieces of it. If you don't feel like you can afford a hundred grand for an experienced researcher, um, just allocate a budget to have a consultant working with that student um, and that student's manager so that you can ensure that the student's on track. So just like when the student's in school, having the professor helping out, same thing. Now you've got a consultant who's helping the student out. And that way you've got the student who's doing all of the work and you're able to afford uh, the student, but you've got a consultant who's ensuring everything is staying on track. Great. That is a, that is a good point with the consultant. And then maybe starting out in a capstone project, that is what I'm doing right now, actually. And then having the professor as the first to um, help them jump in and then maybe take one or the other of the students who work on it already, know the company, had the experience with, this, uh, with the professor, and then put a consultant next to them to That's help guide them. Absolutely. That's a and, great idea. And, you know, as someone who's done a lot of, had hired a lot of interns, uh, you know, don't, yeah, don't hire, don't hire an, an experienced data scientist unless you know them. But know them. So, you know, again, work with the universities. I know BYU does the same thing. So if you need a data scientist and all you can afford is a recent grad, I get the dilemma, you know, it's kind of hard to hire someone right out of school if you don't have a data science department. So that's why you need to go through university, find an excellent student through the university, get to know them, then hire them later and get a consultant. Great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Jonas. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode of Somewhat Overfitting. Thanks again to Matt for being on the show. 
highlights of today's show were the insights into how to use focus groups and interviews to create a great survey, but also Matt's comment on how a company can start in the field of data science, even when they do not have a huge budget for data science yet. Let me know what you thought about this episode on somewhatoverfitting.com. There you can also find today's show notes. If you have something to say about data science and digital transformation, visit somewhatoverfitting.com slash guest and fill out the form. I'm always looking for interesting conversations. The theme song is from Bobby Rands and is called Jungles. Thanks again for listening and see ya.